You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider. Hey, happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the I-5 Corridor podcast. Tyson Alger here, joined in in person for once by uh, Aiden Schneider. Aiden, thanks for having me to... uh... I think this is the I-5 Corridor uh, East office. We're, we're here in Northeast Portland. Uh, last kind of last bit before uh, heading to Vegas. How are you doing, man? Good. Thanks. Thanks for stopping by the office. I uh, I love what you've done with the place. And, and you know, there's uh, there's some boxing gloves, uh, a, a weight set, not a whole lot of Oregon gear. I, I respect that. You're, you're a guy who uh, you don't live in the past too much. It's forward, forward facing. Uh, love what you've done with it. Well, thank you. It's uh, the Oregon gears tucked away, and you're actually the first person who's uh, told me they like what they what we've done with the place. So <laughs> it means a lot. Uh, it, it was actually cool. I, I it, you, uh, you you still kick occasionally, and, and you invited me out to come watch one of your workouts today over at Grant High. Uh, I was surprised that they didn't have the statue up up and ready for you yet. But um, yeah, man, the leg is still looking good. Thanks. Yeah, the, I think the statue's caught up in red tape at this point. Yeah, just but, uh... bureaucratic. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was fun. I've been getting out and kicking a lot more lately, and unfortunately today we clashed a little bit with the lunch bell, so we had some kids on the field. But uh, yeah, it was, it was fun to have you come out and watch. Yeah, you were uh, you were a couple couple inches away on a few of those kicks from a lawsuit happening, and I think, and I might have been uh, been in need of a new podcast partner. But we have plenty of stuff to move on to that matter that matters this week with uh, Oregon facing Utah in Friday's Pac-12 championship game. The Ducks will be looking for their third consecutive conference title. Um, and no team has actually won three Pac-12 championships since the tournament began in, I think, was it 20, 2011, the first one? That's uh, about right. Oregon's won two in a row. Stanford won three out of four. That was a streak that was only broken up by yours truly, uh, Aiden Schneider's Oregon Ducks. And uh, I, I think that puts a little extra, like, onto this game because it's this is an Oregon team that I think a lot of people were disappointed in two weeks ago when Utah ended their playoff hopes with that 38-7 to drubbing in Salt Lake. But now here Oregon is with an opportunity to really kind of like leave a mark on this era that I think is pretty impressive because the first round of those championship runs started with a very veteran heavy roster with Justin Herbert and Troy Dye and all those guys. And, and they've really been able to string that out to this current era, which is led by you know, the defense and Kayvon Thibodeau and, uh, you know, uh, an offense that might be down an offensive coordinator soon. So, um, and the fact that like the entire college football world has essentially blown up the last week. Like, I think this is a pretty important game, right? Yeah, I think it's an important game for a lot of reasons. Um, I think it's really important for, for Cristobal, most of all, um, with the progress he's made with this program and, and where he's been able to get them to, uh, it was a real disappointment, I think, for everyone to be knocked out of the playoff picture. But uh, what better opportunity than to take a loss like that, and then a couple weeks later get another shot to uh, beat the Utes? And I think I think they're going to do it. Yeah, and I, I was really encouraged by the way that they played last week against Oregon State. Um, this isn't your typical Oregon State team that that just didn't really you know test the Ducks when they were really good in the past. Um, they're going to be off to their own bowl game here in a couple weeks, and. Um, you really saw the offense do things that you were really kind of worried about the week before. Uh, and granted, Utah's defense is better than Oregon State's, but really liked really liked where Anthony Brown uh, was at in that game. He was ended up being Pac-12 Player of the Week, um, and it just really kind of shows that like when they're able to move the ball downfield a little bit, it makes him that much more dynamic, especially in those like third and short situations. Because 
Um, you know, for as much as we've kind of taken apart this guy, one thing that I don't think that we've talked about enough is like how strong he is as a runner. And he's like six four, like two thirty five. Like he's a truck. Like he looks pretty sleek out there, but he can move and it and it really makes that offense dynamic in those kind of situations that you should be able to take advantage of like the RPO in. Yeah, I was really, really excited with what I saw from Anthony Brown, and he's taken his fair share of criticism this season, but to go out on senior day the way he did and, and play as well as he did was was really great. But I think one thing that I've really been noticing with him this year is whether it's against better teams or worse teams, he really shines when other areas of the offense are able to have some success. And like we saw that against Colorado, we saw that against Oregon State. Um, I think the times he's struggled have really been where Oregon kind of has to chase the game and he's maybe throwing it a little more than he'd want to. But when he gets going in the run game and is able to get a little bit of a rhythm early on, he, he seemed like he was throwing the ball a lot better than he has been in past weeks. Yeah, this, this team, this Oregon team is so dynamic if they can get an early lead and, and kind of establish that running game. Um, I wrote about that a little bit today in, in Cave on Thibodeau and, and looking back at the Pac-12 title game two years ago where... Um, you know, the Oregon's best option there was to get a lead and then force Utah to play catch up and throw the ball and, and let Kayvon actually go hunting. And that was like one of the first real dynamic games that we saw of him in his young career. And obviously uh, he's had, he's done what he's done since. But um, I, I think that's kind of the, the, the same logic for this one because Utah's going to really try to run it up Oregon. Um, the Ducks have had a lot of injuries kind of up the middle of that defense throughout this year. And um, you know, I, I think they're getting a little bit healthier, especially if they can get through this game. Mario Cristobal talked earlier this week about how they might be able to have Bennett Williams back and, and some other guys, you know, further down the road, like if you get to the Rose Bowl or Alamo Bowl. But um, yeah, like this will still be a really hard game for Oregon. It's going to be hard to make up 31 points. Granted, I, I think that score was a little inflated. I, I think the Ducks just completely just didn't show up for that game. Uh, and, and I doubt they do that two games in a row, especially with there's a lot of people watching what this Oregon team's doing, especially Mario Cristobal here, as a lot of coaches are moving around. Yeah, I think the real challenge is, is going to be on Cristobal and the staff. You know, a lot of things went wrong um, in that first matchup with Utah across the board, really, from coaching to players executing, you know, not getting the ball to open receivers, defense really struggling on first and second down. But it's a great opportunity for Chris Ball and the staff to put together a game plan and, and learn from what happened in the first matchup. You know, Kyle Whittingham's a great coach, and it feels like however good Utah is, he's always good for, for a couple upset wins a year. Um, and Utah's really strong on the special teams front as well, which is something that Oregon has struggled with over the past few weeks in terms of uh, kick coverage especially, as we saw in that Jeez. punt return by Britton Covey. So that's going to be a key as well. What was your reaction when the the link uh, sorry the Lincoln Riley news came out? It it's weird. I I just remember a little bit before that came out seeing videos of him saying like, "Oh, of course I'm not going anywhere." Right. Like, "Why why are you even asking me about this?" And then and maybe he meant it at the time, but I think we're just in a new era of college football where things happen fast. Like the the Brian Kelly uh, situation from Notre Dame to LSU. He was asked about that, and it sounded like it really all came together in a forty-five minute meeting with the athletic director. Right. It's um, it's fascinating because like I'm not Oregon fans hate the way that Willie Taggart left, 
at the same time too, and, and you can look at this with the way Kelly left Notre Dame or uh, Lincoln Riley with Oklahoma, like. I don't really know like what we expect out of them because we all know that they can't like come out and say like, Oh yeah, I'm interviewing for this job. I'm doing this or that. So like we, we kind of hold them to the standard of, well, you better not tell us because if you tell us like it's going to blow up, but you better not lie to us either. And and so like, I understand like the wiggle room there and then it becomes even especially uh, uh, more emphasized when you have like a hundred million dollar contracts on the line. Like, you know, I, I know with the Kelly thing, like the report came out that he only addressed the team for two minutes, but like, what are you going to say there? You, you know, like, like when Willie left, did he like address you guys for like, like how did that go? Yeah, he, he addressed the team, which didn't go all that well. <laughs> um, people were, were pretty upset about it because the worst thing you can do as a coach in that situation is assure your players you're going to be honest with them and they're going to hear things from you first. And that's what Taggart did. He sat us down and he said, like, I have not been talking to Florida State. I know there's rumors swirling, but I owe this to myself and my family if they were to call to talk to them. Right. And so everyone kind of said, okay, I can respect that. It's his dream job. It's his home state. We, we get where he's coming from. But then later on, we kind of pieced the timeline together and found out that he had been talking to Florida State for a couple weeks prior to that conversation. And so that's the most frustrating part is just the lack of transparency. I get that you can't say that to the media, but internally to your team, I think that's a little different. Well, right. And then that's what you're kind of seeing a little bit too with like, you know, you just talked about like the Kelly one, like supposedly coming together over like a period of like 40 minutes. I don't know how much I believe, though, like, like those things. Because, like, you know, with, like, the Lincoln Riley one now, too, like, there was a bunch of rumors that, like, he was doing, like, recruiting, like, on the side for USC. It, it was almost, again, similar things, like, to Taggart. Like, when he was, uh, like, there was that infamous picture of, like, him and Tyler Shuck's living room. Like, I think as he was going down to Tallahassee to interview or, or something like that. Like, it, yeah. it gets so messy. And, and I do think a very large part of this has been the addition of the early signing day in December. Uh, you have to rearrange these chairs on the Titanic before you can actually go out there and, and, you know, start bringing in more talent with the lifeboats. And, and so you like, you're seeing this really accelerated period of, of not of, of football coach talent acquisition, just so you can get right back into your player talent acquisition. And it's um, I mean, it's great if you're a school that's like in need of an upgrade and, and you're that, that team that's able to go poach like Oklahoma and Lincoln Riley or, or whatever. But like, Frankly, like I thought it was pretty bullshit this week to see like the, the playoff committee come out and say that like they would consider Kelly's departure uh, as, as part of like a reason to keep Notre Dame out of the out of the playoff. Like I think that's completely ridiculous. And granted, Notre Dame's probably not going to make it. But can you imagine being like a like a player on a team that like fought to get to that point, and then you get held out because your coach got paid a hundred million dollars to go somewhere else? Like that's insane. Yeah, it's really hard for players, especially. Um, but I just, at the same time, I, I kind of have a hard time knowing how I feel about this because on the one hand, it sucks that Brian Kelly left a team that's their fifth, right? Yeah. So they're, they're so. just outside. It doesn't seem like they're going to get in, but it's a possibility. And my initial reaction is just to say, that's a terrible thing to do for him to abandon those kids and put them in that situation. But... You know, he's offered a a roster with a ton of talent, a place with a much clearer path to get into the playoff and win, and they're offering offering him a hundred million dollars. I think it's 
it's kind of a fragile situation, but I think it really just speaks to the state of college football where it, it feels like it's just turning into more of a business by the day. And I one of the good things about that is that they are easing up rules on players a little bit, um, which I think is really fair because if a coach is going to take off in the middle of the season to go get some big contract somewhere else, it's good that players don't have to sit out anymore and have a little more agency than they have in the past. It, it puts Oregon in a interesting position because you know Mario Cristobal's on your contract for a few more years uh now especially compared to the rest of the country you know top 10 or, or the teams that have been in the playoff he's probably very underpaid compared to some of his peers um he is the highest paid coach in Oregon history and I I think he's he's probably like I think top three or so in the Pac-12 now like, like he, he got a new deal last year so like he's not he, you know he he's not a um asking for money on the streets like the Cristobal family is doing quite fine but he's going to be in like he's in those discussions now for like those big coaching jobs whether it be a potential opening at Miami or when Florida opened up like his name was like swirling around that too like he's number two on Bruce Feldman's like coaches to watch this offseason and so there is I'm not saying it's this year I'm not saying it's next year but there is going to be a time where Oregon is going to have to decide whether or not they want to pay Mario Cristobal like a hundred million dollars. Like if, if that's where this market value is going, because up until now, Oregon has been a school that has committed to paying, like providing their resources to be considered amongst like this top level elite of, of college football, whether it be with the facilities. I mean, heck they're adding a new practice facility this year. Um, so that's, if they're going to want to keep pace with these absolute elite teams. And that's, what's crazy is you're having schools that have been to the playoffs recently have been, that coaches that have been to the playoffs recently that are like, we still need to get even better than this. And Oregon's still chasing like that kind of that playoff bid. Um, this is going to get really expensive really quick, no matter whether Cristobal stays or goes in the long term. Yeah, I think that's just the reality of the situation Oregon's now in. Um, and it puts a lot of pressure on them being kind of that, not quite in the top tier, but kind of that next tier of teams in that 5 to 10 range. And, you know, uh, bringing Cristobal on board and and seeing what he's done with the program, I think, I think there really is going to be a decision to make that. But I think if they if they want to make that jump into that top group of programs, I think they really need to persuade Cristobal to stay, and it's probably going to end up uh, meaning they need to shell out a lot more money to do it. But I just think Oregon's at such a pivotal point that if Cristobal leaves, and they don't get a big name in there and and presumably have to pay whoever that is a lot of money. I think there's some danger of regression there. Um, and, you know, as much as a guy like Justin Wilcox, we've talked about him um, potentially taking the Oregon job at some point, would be great. I think that's that's not quite going to be the recipe to recruit the way Oregon needs to recruit to, to get into that playoff. Yeah, the, the, the game has completely changed in that regard because – Oregon's been mining Southern California under the Cristobal era. That's where they pulled Kayvon Thibodeau out of. It's where they pulled Javon Holland out of. It's where they got the Die Brothers. Like every good player from the Oregon from the last like five years outside of Justin Herbert has basically come from the California area. And a large part of why they've been able to do that is because USC's basically been in the doldrums the last decade or so. Like I remember being down there talking to Micah Pittman uh, before Pittman or Pittman had committed to Oregon. It was before signing day. And he was just saying that like down there, like USC just didn't register. Cause they had like this attitude of like, Oh, they'll just come to us. And 
meanwhile, Oregon, like every Oregon coach was down there like every week, just being like, no, come up here, come up here. And, and that's, you know, you can go through the list the last three or four years, like Oregon's like all over the top 10 players from the state of California. Um, and so there was a lot riding on that USC hider hire. And I think Lincoln Riley's a game changer. You know, I, I don't know enough about like his time at Oklahoma football to know that, like, you know, how good he is in terms of X's and O's or his offense. I mean, obviously he's, he's considered to be one of the better offensive minds in the game. Um, but that's, that's an upper echelon name to hire a, a guy that's basically in his prime has been to the playoff, I think three of the last four years. Um, and has like that kind of cachet that I think USC needed. Um, and you're definitely like, that's not going to have no impact on the recruiting trail. The ducks are going to notice that. And, and I think that's why it, it's, it's crucial to win this game coming up this week too, to be able to say, Hey, we're still the three time, you know, the, the, the defending three time champions. Like we've run this so far, like the last decade, like now let's have like a real challenge for it. Yeah. I think keeping the momentum going for Oregon is going to be really important. And the more I think about it, um, I understand that Cristobal's market value has gone up a lot over the last couple months and even the last couple weeks. But do you think it would be easier for him to win if he goes to Miami, if he goes to Florida, potentially? I I know Lincoln Riley coming in is, is going to make things a little tighter in the Pac-12, but I still think Oregon's in a position where they he has a really good chance to win and get into the playoff in the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I think the path is easier here than it would be. I mean, granted, Miami's in the ACC, so like you have to deal with Clemson, which is, which is going to be a problem, but the rest of that conference is pretty wishy-washy um the ducks are still really well positioned positioned here um i i think usc is going to be a tough team to contend with but that would be in the pac-12 title game so it's basically you're at that point of the year i think washington made a good hire with with hiring fresno state's coach i i think that's one of those ones where maybe similar to jonathan smith where it might be like a little bit of a slow build like i don't expect the huskies to like come out and be you know top 15 and, and grab like a top 10 recruiting class this coming year um, it's a quality conference. It's still very top heavy and, and the ducks are definitely that team that's at the top of, of, of that balance right now. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much all I got on that. Yeah, I, man, it's, it's going to be a, a whirlwind of a couple days because so I, I'll be in Vegas for, I have a 6 a.m. flight tomorrow and then a 6 a.m. flight the next day. So we readers of the I-5 corridor may get a deliriously written game story game story post game but uh and and then sunday these championship games are going to happen and, and i think if you're going to start seeing coaches move around the country it's going to really start happening this weekend um so yeah buckle up here, here, here we go all right one last football note to hit before moving on to uh a little bit of timbers talk aiden uh there have been reports all week that uh oregon offensive coordinator joe moorhead is in final discussions for the akron head job um, uh, from sources that I've talked to, it's, it's something that's likely to happen. It's, it's not finalized yet. So, you know, who knows what happens in the next coming days. We've seen kind of crazy things before, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, that's, that's a tough, but expected break for Oregon. I, I don't think Moorhead, especially since he was coming here as a former SEC head coach, uh, I don't think anyone had like, you know, aspirations that he was going to be here for five, six years, but, uh, I think overall it was a good hire for the Ducks. I think that it was we never truly got to see maybe the the full potential of of a Joe Moorhead system. But uh, 
yeah, I guess it's another important hire for, for Chris Paul coming up here. Yeah, I think Moorhead leaving, like you said, was a little expected. Um, I'm a little surprised that it's Akron. Yeah. The... Yeah, I was I was kind of expecting maybe him to be here for another year, maybe two, and and move back to head coaching role at a bigger program. Well, but... you and I were talking about this beforehand, and, and again, neither of us have any sort of like... We we are not trying to say Mario Cristobal is leaving. Like this isn't this isn't what we're reporting. We're not hearing rumors. But I always thought that if Cristobal moved on, I, I thought Moorhead would have been a nice fit within the building, just because he's a guy that um, has kind of learned. I don't think it's probably outlandish to say that Cr- Moorhead's probably a better football mind than Cristobal is, but Cristobal is a much better executive of a of a department than than Moorhead was. I, I think that's probably what why you saw some of his difficulties. Uh, in the SEC, but um, uh, I, I think that having worked in that and knowing where Oregon recruits and all those sorts of things, I, I think it could have been a, a natural fit for a guy that probably wants to prove himself. Um, you know, Moorhead can be not not soft spoken, but he can be kind of easygoing sounding. But uh, the guy's got a competitive spirit in him, and, and I'm sure that he wants to show that. Uh, um, his time at uh, down in Mississippi uh, was a bit of a fluke. <laughs> Yeah, I expected uh, if Cristobal were to have left suddenly, I I think Moorhead would be in that discussion, especially because Oregon likes to promote from within, um, as we know, and the experience uh, bringing a new guy in with Willie Taggart the last time (laughs) did not quite go as planned. Um, But yeah, Moorhead's been great. I I think that he's been a little limited by his quarterback, there, he has he has done a great job utilizing the quarterback in the run game and adding a dynamic that the Oregon offense just didn't have previously. But I think it would have been really fun to to see him next year, potentially with Ty Thompson uh, or Robbie Ashford or whoever ends up being the starting quarterback because I, I think there's a lot more that the off, offense can be going forward. All right, so it's, it's Oregon and Utah Friday at 5 p.m. It's the Pac-12 title game. It's at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas for the first time. I'm stoked for that. I got really tired of Santa Clara and Levi Stadium. It's just Levi Stadium was in the middle of nowhere. It was hard to get to. Uh, nobody would go to those games either. I remember a few of those championship games just being completely empty in the stadium. Uh, so I don't think anyone's upset about Vegas. And it's super windy. Yeah. The, the kickers will be happy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kickers. You know that dry air in Vegas, the ball probably flies, right? Oh, it's a great place to kick, especially uh, indoors. Speaking of kicking, the Timbers, see, because it's soccer and they use it, <laughs> they use their feet. It's uh, The Timbers are, they might end up being, they're in a pretty good position to, to maybe host something pretty big coming up here, huh? Yeah, they're they're one win away from hosting the MLS Cup final. The New York City FC knocked off the New England Revolution, um, confirming that the Timbers would be, with a win, would be the highest remaining seed and host the final, which is super exciting. So they're matching up um, on Saturday at 3.30. They're playing Salt Lake at home. Um, knock on wood, but <laughs> should should be an easier matchup for them. Uh, Salt Lake snuck in with the last seed in the Western Conference playoffs. And if you looked at it, uh, heading into the playoffs, probably the most beatable team, but they've been on a hot streak and they really had a great win on the road at Kansas City. Um, so they're going to have some momentum coming into Portland, but uh, Timbers are a hot team too and they beat Western Conference leading Colorado on the road in the 
conference semifinals. So uh, I think they're in a really good spot to potentially get back to another final here. This the the MLS has changed to a single elimination format. It's probably really benefited a team like the Timbers, who have been as hot as anybody in the entire league for going on like two months now. Yeah, I like the change. Um, there, it, it makes a lot more sense for like the non soccer fan because like it wasn't. It's like it, it used to be like aggregate scoring, right? For like the two. Yeah. Again, like I have no, I have no idea how it worked before. And now it's pretty simple. Like you win and you keep going. Yeah, that that was a little bit of a hang up for non soccer fans that I knew who would watch the game and see the final score and be like, "All right, this team's going through," and I'm like, "Not so fast." Right. Uh, it's only three to two. They play again, but this team has away goals, so those are weighted heavier. And I just, I think for the the fans on the edge, they just don't care enough to get all into that so uh more traditional format works well for them it, it was crazy to see a per, uh, portland professional sports team win on the road because the blazers are terrible on the road we haven't seen a lot of that lately and it i thought it would be over by now i thought it was just a little phase but it seems to be continuing which on the flip side i think they're i think like 10 and 1 or something ridiculous like that at home uh which worked worked i went to the game last week i, I saw them play uh it was when they played Denver without Jokic and without Murray and uh, um, the guy whose back is always bad, um, Michael Porter. Uh, um, yes. And they won that game easily, and then they, they went to Denver and then got their butts kicked again. So uh, um, I, I think the Blazers are probably like right around where everyone thought they would be, probably 500 You know, before they get into that. Uh, there's always like a story in January, February of like Dame getting the team together, and it's like Dame's the professional version of Dana Altman. Like, you know, just just wait wait till he gets his guys and he's comfortable and, and they'll get going. Yeah, it's it's just a bit surprising. I I don't know what the causes are, um, but all in all, I'd say um, Chauncey Billups has I think done a decent job so far. I think there are a lot of good things for them to build on, but it kind of goes without saying they are going to need to start winning some games on the road if they want to. Uh, get out of a, a bad playoff seed where they're playing a team like the Warriors in the first round. Was the halftime show at the Oregon-Oregon State game where they had some guy just dressed up in the Halo figurine walking around like he you know, had just done deadlifts for about 10 hours, <laughs> was that the dumbest thing they could have possibly done? It, I mean, they probably got paid a lot of money for it. Okay, maybe this is me being old and get off my lawn. Uh but like when they do like those like augmented reality things, because like they had on the big screen like the video of like the Halo ship coming into like midfield, and it's it's a it's projected on like the video of like the actual live people, and then it goes and flies away, and then like Bleacher Reports Twitter accounts is like, oh my god, I can't believe the AR at Austin Stadium, and like I like Halo, I like football. You can do that shit on your iPhone. Like, <laughs> like why was that cool? I don't understand. It weirded me out a bit, and I, I saw that tweet you were talking about, and it just, it doesn't feel organic enough. It just feels too forced, and I especially thought it was weird that you got some big advertising deal that the school's gotten itself into, and then you have the marching band playing the Halo theme <laughs> know, song right? as a part of that. It's just, it's just a whole, like, creepy kind of weird thing, and I don't know. I mean, maybe it worked for some people. But. Were, were, are you are you old enough? Were, were you into Halo when you were younger? Like, oh, that, yeah. like that was, that was like the big, I remember like going to my friend's houses and like system linking together to play like Halo 2 and thinking it was like the coolest thing ever. Like you can turn radars off and you, you can't even look at the other guy's screen. They'll never know where you are. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. I, I played a fair bit of Halo. Okay. I played the new one. It's, 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 
It's fine. Um, I was debating whether I should buy it or not. I think I should do it. Well, the multiplayer is free if if you're on Xbox. Well, I guess it's all Xbox. The multiplayer yeah. is free, but then you gotta you gotta pay for the campaign. No, um, no one plays campaign anymore. No one plays campaign, and like, who would pay for anything? Like, when, especially when everything else is given away for free. Why would you pay for a product unless it was... Pre- Speaking of, the i5 Corridor, you can find <laughs> online at i-5corridor.com and you can sign up for live reporting from Las Vegas for this week's Pac-12 Championship why game. Would, why would you pay for anything else why? besides the i5 Corridor? Exactly. You could have Halo, a game that has made millions and millions and millions happy for decades. Or you could have like a story about a team that might not win this weekend, you know? But a team that might win. But a team that might win. Glass half full. All right. That's probably good for us. See you guys next week. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider.